I have now found myself in season three of The Wire. It is getting better and better. I, I just realized I can't actually tell anyone about this because there might be one more human being left in the world who hasn't watched The Wire and he might be in this podcast because you're still waiting. Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. This week, we're talking about Skyfall. But before we get to that, what have you been up to since we last talked? I've been watching Mythic Quest, which I was a little skeptical about because I wasn't interested in Silicon Valley. It's just not my kind of show. But now that I work for a tech startup, I figured this would be more my jam. And it is. It's very funny, clever. Characters are all well-drawn. And the gamer inside vibe of the show is really cool. So highly recommend Mythic Quest for, for all of you who haven't tuned in yet. Also, my 12-year-old son loves the show. So it's another great example of a fun, clever bit of comedy that you can enjoy with the whole family of a certain age. Speaking of spy stuff, what I have been watching is the John le Carré spy stuff. In true Geek Channel 8 fashion, I have to watch them in the career order of George Smiley. So I first watched The Deadly Affair, and then The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, a black and white noir spy thriller where Smiley appears like super briefly, like in one scene. And then I watched A Murder of Quality, which was done for BBC TV and has Christian Bale in it hmm. as a kid. He was still a kid when this was made at a boys' school. And it's very much like an Agatha Christie mystery, but they call in George Smiley, which is weird. And then Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, I did not watch the Alec Guinness one, but I watched the more recent one. Gary Oldman. With uh, <laughs> Gary Oldman, yeah. And I have to say, I guess they must be good books. I haven't read any of them. The movies are so dry and so long. <laughs> and like, uh, I did not enjoy any of them that much. I thought, you know what? This, okay, this may be more realistic spy stuff, but it's not more entertaining. <laughs> no, you only watch Tinker Tailor just for the masterclass in acting that is Gary Oldman. It took me so long to get through A Murder of Quality. Probably took me 10 sittings. And it took more than one sitting, I think two sittings, to get through the Gary Oldman one. So, <laughs> oh, what a slog. And so I'm happy to be back talking about Bond. This is Skyfall. It came out in 2012, so a little bit of a background for the year 2012. 2012 was a big year for prison breaks. <laughs> On January 23rd, John Anslow, a crime boss charged with murder, escaped from the van, transporting him to a court appearance following an armed ambush near Redditch, Worcestershire. Henchmen in black ski masks smashed the van open with sledgehammers, and then he was eventually apprehended on Cyprus in 2013. He was the first Category A 
prisoner to escape in more than 17 years. Category A are the serious criminals in the UK. Okay, just keep that in mind as we go through (laughs) Skyfall here. So that was in January 23rd. February 8th, Foxconn, the Taiwanese electronics manufacturer for Apple, Amazon, Cisco, Google, and Microsoft, was hacked by, quote, swag security who demanded over 1800 bitcoin which at the time was about uh, 34.7 million dollars it was the largest ransomware attack to date it still is i believe the largest ransomware attack to date and money may not have been the sole motivation since it coincided with foxconn protest over working conditions in the chinese tech factories if you remember that april 24th the coroner's inquest into the death of Gareth Williams ruled that Williams' death was unnatural and likely to have been criminally mediated. That was a direct quote. Williams was an employee of GCHQ, which stands for Government Comm Headquarters, and was assigned to SIS, which is essentially MI6 in the Bond universe here. As Part of a team of intelligence officers sent there to penetrate hacking networks. A few months before his death, he'd asked to return to GCHQ as he disliked the, quote, rat race, flash car competitions, and post-work drinking culture at MI6. (laughs) His body was found in a gym bag padlocked from the outside in the bathtub of an SIS safe house in central London. So it doesn't sound too safe, but (laughs) (laughs) his family alleges that DNA evidence at the scene was tampered with and fingerprints left at the scene were wiped off as part of a cover-up. This is an ongoing investigation. June 3rd, during the Thames Diamond Jubilee pageant, celebration of Queen Elizabeth II's 60 years on the throne, the London Philharmonic Orchestra played the James Bond theme as they passed the MI6 building. On June 5th, LinkedIn was hacked and 6.5 million accounts were compromised. This would have a second wave uh, again in 2018 and the hacker who went was called Nicolin also claimed to have been involved in the 2016 DNC hack. He was tried and convicted in 2020, last year, the first trial post-COVID-19 shutdown. Uh, He was sentenced to 88 months, which he is serving at the time of this recording. On June 27th, John Massey, the UK's longest-serving prisoner, escapes for the (laughs) third time. For the third time. (laughs) So you think, you know, after he escaped a couple of times, they would keep a tighter eye on this guy. But all right. July 4th at CERN, the Higgs boson particle was discovered. On July 27th, the 2012 Summer Olympics kicked off in London. The opening ceremonies featured Daniel Craig as James Bond escorting the Queen to the stadium. August 15th, the most valuable company in the world, Saudi Aramco, suffered the biggest hack in history, both in terms of cost and destructiveness. So it was a big year for hacking. 
Iranian hacker group Cutting Sword of Justice claimed responsibility in retaliation for Stuxnet. October 23rd, 2012, Skyfall is released. Skyfall was the second highest grossing film of 2012 behind The Avengers, and those two films, along with The Dark Knight Rises and The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey, became the first four films to cross the $1 billion mark. Skyfall was also the first to cross the 100 million pound mark. Skyfall won Best Score at BAFTA, Best Song at Critics' Choice, uh, Golden Globes, and the Oscars. Yeah, just one more note about the original song by Adele while we're on the subject. Uh, It is one of the best-selling singles of all time, with 7.2 million copies worldwide sold or downloaded. So huge, huge success for, for a James Bond title song, although... Maybe we'll have to have a segment at some time debating our favorites. Skyfall was also nominated for Best Cinematography. It didn't win, but it just goes in the long list of nominations for Best Cinematography that should have gone to Roger Deakins, of course, the immortal cinematographer who was known for favorites such as No Country for Old Men. So if it seems like Skyfall has a little bit of a No Country for Old Men vibe, it's not an accident and it's not just because of Javier Bardem. It's also because of Roger Deakins. Deakins, of course, eventually went on to win two Oscars, one for Blade Runner 2049 and another for his collaboration with Sam Mendes on 1917. I don't know how into Sam Mendes's vision I am when it comes to these films, but Roger Deakins, I think he is the greatest living cinematographer. I have thought that for a long time. I remember uh, the first time I took notice of him was with Passion Fish, mm-hmm. and that was in 92. All right, so I have been watching this guy and hoping he got an Academy Award for his cinematography for decades before he finally got one. I mean, this film was two decades after Passion Fish, and he still hadn't won one. Yeah, it's awesome work. And I mean, the range of everything from Coen Brothers to, you know, and Sid and Nancy is on his list. Yep. Just everything from there to bona fide action movies like Skyfall and 1917 just shows incredible range. So the cinematography for this film is interesting because it also reflects some of the themes that we find in the film. Uh, This is the first Bond film to be shot all on digital. So you have this new technology coming into the creation of the film, but then you have a classically trained cinematographer, Roger Deakins, behind the camera. And he employed a lot of classic style cinematography to the film. Lots of tight shots that require a lot more intentional composition for each scene rather than the more modern style of you panning out, capturing more in the frame, and then editing in and, and providing the zoom in later. So so these tight shots that Deacons gets really make Skyfall feel like a very artfully crafted film in the style of some of the classic James Bond scenes. Uh, Mendes admitted he's particularly proud of the Shanghai sequences in Skyfall, which use a 
mirror-like window and colorful projected imagery in the background of the fight scene. This is really awesome silhouetted fight scene that we can credit Deacons for. There was some interesting drama leading, <laughs> leading up to the creation of this film. There was a temporary bankruptcy at MGM, which gave them extra time to work on the script. Thank goodness. <laughs> this is, I think, one of the stronger Bond scripts in the canon. And they even got to do a full read through of the script together as a cast, which is basically unheard of in action movies. And it was the first time doing it for a Bond film. Skyfall marked the 50th anniversary of Bond. So there's a lot of classic callbacks to some of the Connery Bonds and some of the Roger Moore Bonds in this film. We'll get to some of those later as we continue to explore these themes of the old and the new. But as a note about Sam Mendes's approach to this, he wanted to make sure that he really earned each of these homage moments and that they weren't just haphazardly put in wherever. More on Sam Mendes in our episode on Road to Perdition, but to recap his career here, his directorial debut was American Beauty, which won him Best Director and Best Picture. Hard to imagine a film more different from Skyfall than American Beauty, but the guy's got range. <laughs> uh, while he was working on this particular film, though, uh, he was going through a separation from his then wife, Kate Winslet. And even though I don't usually go in for this sort of behind the scenes gossip, you do have to wonder whether some of the themes of betrayal that also show up in this film are in any way informed by Sam Mendes's experience with his separation and possible love affair with Rebecca Hall. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Okay, this week we have a special treat for you. We have bartender and mixologist Gabby Varela, who's going to fill us in on her choice for a special Skyfall cocktail. Welcome, Gabby. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Two of my favorite things to talk about. So <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. So tell us about the James Bond cocktail connection. Yeah, so the James Bond sort of cocktail legacy is a really fun one because the drink has sort of transformed the same way that the roles have transformed with each new Bond. Skyfall being kind of one of the more exciting ones for me just because you get Daniel Craig. He's sort of a newer rebranded Bond. And then you also get like a lot of background. The cocktails themselves are fun to play with because the original cocktail, as you know, is the Vespera, which was created for the series. And that over time has changed with the book and the writer's imbibing habits and product placement 
and all that sort of fun stuff that adds into like the cultural reinvention of these things. So the original cocktail, um, the Vesper calls for gin, vodka, and Lillet, but you get this really nice piece of Bond's background in Skyfall where Raul, the sort of villain, mentions that he recalls that Bond's favorite spirit is the Macallan, which is a Highland Scotch. Then in the movie, he goes back to the Highlands and it's sort of a like an insider look into like what he is and where he came from. And so the cocktail that I came up with brings that in in the basic structure of a Vesper, which is three parts gin, one part vodka and half part Lillet, which is nice and strong and can also be pared down. But I use an aged gin because at this point in the series, we get a good idea of who the character is. He's a little bit older. He's established in his career and he's like, he's sort of like com making a comeback. And then you get to know like his background. And so I added in a Highland Scotch, not McAllen, because that would be an expensive cocktail. <laughs> but what usually pairs really well is a drink called the Rusty Nail. So I played with that instead of a fortified wine like Lillet, I brought in Drambury 15, which is aged with whiskey. They released it in 2008, I want to say, and then it was discontinued. So it's sort of like a really special take on that particular liquor pushed with it being aged with whiskey. It brings in the Highland Scotch and you get an aged gin. Really bold. You get a lot of oak, you get a lot of honey, you get something really silky. You get like just a really smooth sipper that is in line with the character, but also gives it a little bit more depth. It gives it a little bit more background. It's not as clean cut as the Vesper comes off to be. That sounds pretty potent. Yeah, definitely. It'll, it definitely takes you there. <laughs> okay, so what about the preparation? That, so that's, we're gonna get, I can really nerd out on this with you. The shaken, not stirred part of Bond that also changes throughout the movies. It appeared at Dr. No, but it's also been rephrased in a couple different ones. He said it, other people have said it, other people have asked him if he wants it shaken or stirred. It's sort of an immortalized phrase that it defines him, but it doesn't quite stay the same. And so in the cocktail world, we wouldn't really shake a spirit heavy cocktail, specifically gin. I would prefer stirring. It's an unusual sort of little character identification that uh, of course has immortalized the character, but at the same time, it's interesting that it doesn't fall in line with what a bartender would probably instinctually do in a spirit heavy cocktail, going against the grain a little bit. So how would you serve this on the rocks or up? Those of us who've been fans for a long time of the Bond series, know that Bond prefers it served straight up with a twist. How would you serve this drink? Yeah, up, chilled, in a chilled glass would be how I would put it with a orange peel. So sticking with the how the original recipe that I wrote for the aged gin scotch Vesper with Drambui, it would call for um, a traditional Vesper structure, which is 
I would say one and a half aged gin with one ounce of Highland Scotch and a half of Drambuie. Drambuie can be overpowering. So like Lillet, it's sort of just a compliment to the two power players and stirring it up, chilling it and pouring yourself a nice heavy glass. Okay, so let's jump into a discussion about the film. So this film opens with Bond entering a building and the the thing takes place in the middle of an action sequence, right? There's uh, he's hunting someone down. Um, you know, he's in communication with M. It's pretty unclear what's going on at the start. They're actually after something, quote, the list, which we don't find out what that is quite yet. Yeah. And what really struck me about this opening sequence, it's one of the few moments in the Bond world where you see a team driven mission. Usually, you know, Bond's got like another buddy in the field, like Felix Leiter, but it's mostly Bond on his own and then other people monitoring him, but not the sort of direct involvement of Bond coordinating with the team to try to zero in and triangulate and capture an enemy. But one of the other notes about this is that M is very directly involved in this opening sequence in in making decisions about how Bond is going to act, which is also unusual. M is usually more like sitting on the sidelines watching Bond and then, you know, weighing in afterwards, you know, with a little slap on the wrist and a funny line or something like that. But this is one of the first times that we see M really directly involved in calling the shots. And it starts with her telling Bond to basically leave one of his colleagues to die. Just like, you know, he's he's done for. Go chase after that list. That's more important. And M establishes herself as a very pragmatic character. Pragmatic maybe to a fault. It turns into a vehicle chase, which is first uh, Naomi Harris and, and a Land Rover chase. And then it turns into a motorcycle chase <laughs> on the roof of the Grand Bazaar. And then it turns into a fight on a train. And at one point, the train becomes decoupled and Bond has to cross over and jump into the new train car. And he falls down through the roof, this hole that he's made in the roof. And it's filled with passengers. And yeah, he starts adjusting his cufflinks. Okay, so this, that to me was a Roger Moore callback right there. It reminds me of like, you know, Nat was talking about, I think uh, when we were talking about Casino Royale, he was talking about the first Bond film. He saw like The Spy Who Loved Me or whatever, where the uh, where, where the lotus comes up onto the beach. You know, it's, it's kind of like that where like there'll be something crazy happens and then Bond will just like walk through past all the like civilians as if he's like one of them. When it's obvious, like, look, you just came out of a submarine, you know, or you just like whatever. It's like eventually they're back on the roof of the train and... Naomi Harris. Naomi Harris, who just spoiling it for the for the end here. Naomi Harris as Money Penny, but in the field. So she's got a rifle with a scope, and she sees them from a distance, and she does not have a clear shot on the bad guy. And M tells her to take the shot anyway. Taking the shot at 
M's direction, even though she says, you know, I don't have a clear shot. I'm, you know, I'm going to hit Bond. And M says, take the bloody shot. And uh, she does. And and she ends up shooting Bond. We watch Bond just like catapult off the train and into the water, you know, a hundred foot drop and then over a waterfall. It's it's bad. It's looking bad. <laughs> And then we get our opening montage that is at the start of all these Bond films, the opening title sequence. In previous Bond films, they've teased this maternal relationship between M and Bond or M and all the agents, perhaps. And this scene definitely establishes that that relationship is tricky and that M is not a maternal figure necessarily. Uh, you sort of imagine how the scene would play out if M were a guy in this part of the, the Bond story. And if a guy were to say, take the shot, how, like would would we have felt any, any particular way? But the film does a great job of drawing out this parent-child relationship between M and the agents and showing well, they call this. Well, they call her mom, right? Yes. Like they she... will as a sign of respect, but, um, but that it really shows this, um, the sense that M has betrayed them or M has let them down, which then continues to be a, a main arc of the story going forward. Yeah. Okay. So I was like, Oh wow. Killing bond in the first five minutes. It's like you only live thrice. <laughs> so, we haven't gotten to You Only Live Twice, but we will get there. We are doing these in Bond career order. So the next scene, when we finally see Bond again, he's uh, he's in a bar in Southeast Asia Pacific area. I don't, you know, and uh, he's um, he's having a drinking contest, and this drinking contest to me seemed like a not a call back to bond stuff at all to me it seemed like a cross between the marion ravenwood drinking contest in in raiders of the lost ark and the the um the uh russian roulette scene from the deer hunter like mm -hmm. that, it's like a cross between those two because bond Ha is drinking but he's got like a scorpion on his hand and he has to take the shot without disturbing the scorpion and then flick the scorpion off and you know and then money changes hands and stuff like that you know now that i'm thinking about it how many times does the phrase take the shot apply to this to skyfall i feel like this particular like you know about to do something dangerous and possibly lethal I mean, I guess you could say that about all Bond films, but, you know, there sh other shots will be taken later in the film. That's all I was going to say. <laughs> there is a reason why we had Gabby here. <laughs> and James Bond with a beard. Like, it's so great to see. I mean, James Bond, like, in bed with a nice lady drinking uh, like a Stella, you know, like Bond, like totally unwound in in the on the island life you know it was it's a really great side of him to see so churchill's bunker was a nice touch you know so speaking of all of this stuff like this is like the second or third time i could have tied this 
back over to um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. But anyway, <laughs> back in, in Churchill's bunker, that was a nice touch. Well, and it goes back to this old and the new paradigm that, you know, after the the ugly part of MI6 is blown up and they end up in this old bunker, that, that that's part of that sense of, you know, connecting the dots through history and and whether MI6 is going to be able to modernize and move into a new era. The, yeah, moving back into the bunker is one part of that. I think maybe this is a good time for us to talk about the new Q, who in the previous Bond films was sort of this, you know, older, you know, jaunty character, but yeah. um, but definitely like, you know, had the wisdom of years. And now Q is being replaced by a young whippersnapper, Ben Wishaw. Um, and there's a great there's a great quote pairing here. I'm your new quartermaster. You must be joking. Why? Because I'm not wearing a lab coat. Because you still have spots. My complexion is hardly relevant. And your competence is. Age is no guarantee of efficiency. And youth is no guarantee of innovation. If that doesn't sum up the the theme in Skyfall, I don't know what does. In a previous episode, I had asked you what Q stood for, and you brought up queer and... Only because of Judith Butler. That's I'm not taking credit for that. I'm just pointing to scholarly articles about James Bond people might want to check out. And I mentioned how Q actually stands for Quartermaster. Well, this particular Bond film is one of the few times where we actually have him say his title. He says, I'm your new Quartermaster. And Bond says, you must be joking. And that was my reaction to And that's when they then have the exchange that you just mentioned. He gives them a Walter PPK and a radio. And the Walter PPK is like tagged to his fingerprint so that only he can fire it. And so it does have one modern uh, like upgrade there. And then he's so basically a gun and a radio. And so then Q says... Were you expecting an exploding pen? We don't really go in for that anymore. What were you expecting? An exploding pen? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, yes! You know, <laughs> yes, I was! I have said it before and I'll say it again. I never thought I would say this because for years and years I thought that Bond needed to be more serious. I actually want some more whimsy in this in this stuff. I think it's getting too gritty and too no country for old menish. I think they need to get back to basics, which is away from the basics. They need to have thrilling cities, Hong Kong, Macau, Shanghai, they have here, but you know, they need more gadgets, fast cars, big explosions, and big cup sizes. You know, I have some one one simple request, and that is to have sharks with freaking laser beams <laughs> on their heads. You know. <laughs> I think we don't have exploding pens anymore is just feeding into this tension in the film about the old ways versus the new ways. I don't think it's part of this other direction we saw in Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace of being very serious, not campy bonds. I think with Skyfall, they're trying to make that transition from being very serious to leaning a little bit more camp. And we will talk about Spectre and how it leans into it hardcore. But one of the things I liked about this film is it actually stands alone as a really good film, even outside of the Bond universe, which 
despite the fact that I think Dr. No and Goldfinger stand as the quintessential Bond film, every single one should be modeled with that spirit in mind. It should be campy. There should be gadgets. There should be women named Pussy Galore. Like, that's what I want Bond to be. But you have to give Skyfall credit for the fact that it has actual themes that it's exploring in a way that no other Bond film does. You know, this film is about something. It's about the past catching up with you. And it's about the old and the new ways trying to navigate which direction you you want to go. Do you want to preserve what's old or modernize? And that that's a question about the Bond series as much as it is about this particular character inside the universe. I want to talk about Javier Bardem as the villain. An interesting, classic kind of villain who's bent on a global plan, compromising all these agents. He set up this complex server system in order to hack governments and control markets. He's got a vision of vast control, but then also has this like very personal revenge goal happening. But I want to call out specifically like the genius of Roger Deakins and Sam Mendes in the shot where he's introduced. It's this stunning long shot where you see him from a doorway far away, surrounded by these servers. And he slowly walks towards the camera as he's monologuing. It's just such a brilliant shot and so well done. And it creates this kind of seductive tension between the character Silva and Bond which is something you haven't seen in a Bond film before. When the villain is a woman, like in World Is Not Enough, that sexual tension between Bond and the villain is very potent. But you've never seen it with a guy villain before. And these this great moment where Bond says, you know, M's never had me tied up in a chair before. And Silva says, her loss. <laughs> Just, you know, really a, a playfulness between the two of them which I'm sure some Bond fans in a certain camp found outrageous, but was actually really great for establishing what kind of person Bond is. He's flexible and he's game. When Silva is massaging his thighs and Bond says, what makes you think this is my first time? It's just like totally, a totally different Bond. And so going back to our question about like, is this a serious Bond film? Or is it a little campy? I think they've got a little bit of camp in this scene with the villain. I think this is more like a classic, like, oh, you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die kind of confrontation. To your point about Bond should feel less like No Country for Old Men, I think what's interesting about Skyfall is that you're right. It's not very whimsical. Instead, it's a bit unhinged or at least the villain is. Javier Bardem as the villain, he as a villain is not whimsical, but he is unhinged. He's a slippery dude. There's some playfulness there, but it's not the kind of playfulness that we see in You Only Live Twice when the villain has a pit of piranhas that someone could fall into if they walk across the bridge and he hits a button and they fall in and then suddenly they're skeletonized and there's blood everywhere. And the villains in Bond are always a little bit nuts, but usually in that whimsical direction, usually in in the way of their plot is so fantastical or their lair is so ridiculously tricked out that you can tell that they're off the charts. But here with Bardem, it's a different kind of unhinging. What I'm talking about is not just 
and not just the villains it's everything so it's like the more gadgets yes but also even just the cars like it's a land rover for a while now bond movies have had bmws cars that you or i could go out and buy where once upon a time they were like italian sports cars and things that you rarely ever see in real life the women like i said big cup sizes big explosions all that they are very attractive women but it used to be that they were larger than life just like the cars, very exotic looking, very over the top Glamazon types. We'll get to Ursula Andress later. We'll get to Ursula Andress when we do Dr. No. <laughs> you know, sharks with freaking laser beams. Speaking of which, the shark meter went off a little bit. You got a little tick on the shark meter here. Now, while it didn't have actual sharks in it, it did have two prehistoric apex predators that are fast, deadly, and they have jaws full of fangs the Komodo dragons, the land sharks of this movie. So I'd say that registers on the shark meter because ding, ding, ding. although they are land sharks, they are they are probably the closest land animal to a shark. So yeah, we'll we'll give it we'll give it and there were two of them. Didn't have laser beams on their heads, but okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I hadn't even tied the Komodo dragon into this theme of the old and the new, but you're right. They are like ancient prehistoric predators that still live among us. And even that ties into this old new theme. I actually really enjoyed the fact that they managed to weave a little bit of menace into technology that is both old technology we've taken for granted and also new technology that back in 12, we were all collectively seeing as a real threat. Now, of course, almost 10 years later, some of the things that they tease in this film have become serious threats that everyone is aware of around cybersecurity and data security. So it's interesting you get that side of it, the menace of new technology, but then also radio showing up all over the place in this film in the way that M and Naomi Harris use it to communicate about, oh, maybe you should shoot Bond while he's on the train. <laughs> and then, you know, later used by Bond to call in the cavalry slash helicopters. And then again by Bardem when he quotes the same line back at Bond. Bond had said, latest thing from Q Branch, it's called a radio. And later in the underground, Silva sends it right back at him and blows up the underground and says, new thing from my local toy store, it's called radio. Yes, there is definitely an old versus new thing going on in this. I think if we ever end up recording an episode on a view to a kill, it would make a great contrast with this because that was made at the dawn of the computer age and takes place at least partially in Silicon Valley. And these new Silicon Valley millionaires were being looked at with a lot of skepticism. And that is what the villain is. And then we don't get a lot of digital age stuff in Bond per se. You know, it uh, you can't avoid it because computers are everywhere in our lives. But it's not until this movie where, like, now we're into hacking, you know, and cybersecurity. So it's interesting to see how far things have come from a view to a kill to now. That would be a great one to revisit, for sure. What I noticed about this film is that it flips the classic Bond pattern. 
so your your regular Bond film, it opens with that action sequence, then it goes into the montage, and then we start out to learn about the very hints of something that may be going on. And Bond has to go to some exotic locale and investigate it. And then during the course of his investigation, there's one or two attempts on Bond's life. And then there's an attempt to capture Bond to find out what he knows. And usually he's captured by some thugs, taken to the villain, the master villain, like questions him to find out what he knows and then puts him in usually a death trap. And then Bond escapes the death trap. And this eventually leads to a showdown in the villain's lair. And that's kind of the standard classic Bond pattern. This film, instead of being captured by the villain and put into a death trap and then escaping, they catch the villain and he escapes and then shows up for a showdown at Bond's lair, Skyfall, the boys' school where Bond came from in sort of this Scottish manor slash castle. And so I wanted to compare and contrast this with the Scottish castle in Casino Royale, the 1967 (laughs) film. (laughs) Do you think there is any comparison to be made there? Um... No, I that there aren't nearly enough women in the Skyfall Castle to qualify as as comparable to the Casino Royale Den of Iniquity, um, with like Bond being drugged and surrounded by all these beautiful women who are trying to be deflowered by him. Like, no, completely different castles. I don't know. I think that there is a general lack of respect for Scottish castles. They tend to get blown up a lot. <laughs> well, you do have me there. <laughs> I feel like um, they put up a pretty good defense, though. You know, Home Alone style, going to lay some traps. As Bond puts it very succinctly to Kincaid, the old gamekeeper played by Albert Finney, who's also just an incredible actor and really brings it to this role. So Bond says, some men are going to kill us. We're going to kill them first. And Kincaid says, well, then we better get ready. (laughs) And then they, you know, cue the montage of all the traps. There's no pitch on the stairs or rusty nails sticking out of the floor the way you have in Home Alone, but you've got some pretty serious explosives rigged in important places. Under the ice. This was one last note I had here, which this is my pet peeve, is people doing stuff under the ice. This has come up in some other movies we're going to talk about in the future here. How did Bond know the mercenary had a flare gun? You know, he escapes from under the ice with the flare gun. How did he know that? There's a few too many things like that in this film. Oh, something else I forgot to mention way back at the beginning. I never really understood how Bond originally got the hard drive off of the Mm. agent. We never see that happen. And I went back and watched it two or three times. Clearly, he didn't take it into the water with him when he was shot. You know, (laughs) like, what? Huh? Yeah. No, there are are a couple couple little plot holes like that. While we're talking about some fun, interesting moments, you know, just like other, other things that we picked out, I really love the scene with 
Javier Bardem walking down the sea of servers in, you know, on this abandoned island. And it's this beautiful long shot capturing that slow, deliberate walk to Bond. And then their very playful homosexual tension right on the surface of the conversation where, you know, it's as Silva is teasing him about, you know, what he might do. And Bond says, what makes you think this is my first time? I love that they took licenses with the character and allowed the character to go in new directions. But I also loved all of the callbacks to classic Bond, you know, ways in which they drew Skyfall back into the canon. You get a lick of the music, the original theme, when the car appears, his beautiful old Aston Martin shows up. And that there were a number of moments like that that were direct points to the real fans saying, Bond is back. This is back in the style of the original series. I think they did a great job with it. Yeah, it even ends with the gun barrel. There was no gun barrel at the start of it. Again, it ends with the gun barrel and the 50 years of 007. I thought that was great. And yeah, they're definitely promising and there's callbacks. I just would like to see, and I'm hoping we're going to get to see it swing a little bit more back to the Lotus Esprit, Pussy Galore, Can't Be Bond. We'll see. Overall, Skyfall, excellent film. You know, another one of the really top Bond films. I really liked the introduction of Daniel Craig in Casino Royale. I think this movie's even better than Casino Royale, 2006. This may be the crowning achievement of the Craig-era Bond films. We'll, we'll have to see how No Time to Die turns out. I want to remind everybody that you can email us at gc8podcast at gmail.com. That's letter G, letter C, number eight podcast all on word at gmail.com you can find us on various social media although we're really bad about that but you can find us there <laughs> okay well we will continue our run of bond next time until then this is eric this is johanna signing off poor thing like imprinting on Roger Moore like like a bird with its wrong mother you know Roger Moore is not the bond you want to imprint with you got to imprint with Connery